This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 160, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Clay Wilkes, CEO and co-founder of Galileo Financial Technologies, to discuss the attributes of being a great entrepreneur. Insiders in the audience will know of Galileo, the rest of you may not. However, Galileo's APIs are used by a phenomenal 95% of US digital banking, an amazing stat, and in London, apparently, five out of the top five digital banks. Global clients include Monzo's, Revolut's, Robinhood's, and TransferWise's. Their APIs do exciting things like account record, ledger, authorization, settlement, ACH, whatever that is, fraud, dispute, customer service, business intelligence, and all leading forms of contactless payment, and much, much more. But that kind of stuff is interesting only for the, well, I was about to say oily-fingered engineers, but that's a little bit out of date these days, so perhaps these days it's the skinny-jeaned, checked-shirted engineers. For the rest of us, zooming up from the APIs under the hood... Galileo went one further than selling APIs recently, or is that renting them, I'm not sure, and recently sold itself to SoFi for a cool $1.2 billion, thereby making it into that rarest of beasts, not the so-called unicorn beloved of tech media, which is based on breathless auto-hyping PR releases, extrapolating ad infinitum what the latest VC paid for a small slug of a company, but your real genuine single-horned animal that someone liked so much they paid a billion for it. A real unicorn is definitely a rara animalis. Many have formed fintechs, but few have sold their animalis for a billion dollars. So, as I could certainly do with cashing in the podcast for a figure near or thereabouts that amount, and you founders out there might like to do the same, whilst those of you in big company roles stare out of the window and dream, if you're lucky enough, that one day you will do the same, I thought rather than just another episode about payments, bank accounts, APIs, and other such excitements, we might ask Clay the $1 billion question. Namely, of course, so how do you make a billion dollars? How hard can it be? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Clay. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Absolutely thrilled to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. So I was actually just thinking of something, and uh, I actually Googled it before we started, and I couldn't get an answer from Google, which is a very strange phenomenon in the modern world. I mean, when I was a kid... You couldn't find out the answer to most things, actually. It was a very different world. And I don't know whether you know the answer to this question, which I said good morning to you. But it's very strange because you're in Salt Lake City where it's definitely morning and I'm south of London where it's definitely afternoon. So I was wondering, do I say good morning to be polite to you because it's morning to you or do I say good afternoon because that's what I'd say because I'm sitting here? And I didn't actually know the answer. Do you know the answer? You know, uh, that's a great question. And um, I think good afternoon would be appropriate. But if I were in the reverse role, I would probably say good afternoon to my guest. In other words, uh, I would have gone to your place in time. But I I don't know if that's the right answer. Well, I didn't find one. So any listeners who are better at Googling than I am can uh, Google it properly and uh, and please share it with me. I I think it certainly sounds saying good morning at four o'clock in the afternoon, a very odd thing to do. But uh, it's an interesting question of protocol. And of course, these protocols, when they were developed, were designed a few thousand years before it was possible to speak to people in a different time zone. So in terms of kicking things off, we've had many entrepreneurs on the podcast before and uh, a number of entrepreneurs 
the sort of 30-something genre, seem to try and do everything in life at the same time. So some of them are moving house, they've got a, got a fintech, and they're having babies and, and everything all at the same time. Goodness knows how they fit it in. But in terms of having babies, you're, you're quite good at having babies, or, or rather your wife is quite good at having babies. <laughs> it's true. We have 10 children. We're here today, Mike, and I'm thrilled, by the way, as I said, to talk about business and entrepreneurship and starting a business and making it all work in the world of fintech. But uh, it's important to stay focused on what's truly important. Now, 10 children might be too much focus on uh, what's important, but family is cer <laughs> certainly important. And it's, it's really where we and I derive uh, the meaning of life. So Yes, absolutely. And it's always tempting to fall into correlation is, is causation. But I can certainly see that, that having 10 children is, is a great motivation to go out and make <laughs> more money than if you sort of have uh, 1.6 or whatever the average is. If you go for one more, of course, you'll have a, a, an English a, a football team. So in terms of the career journey, diving in because sort of a uh, billion dollars is quite a lot of dollars. So we, we need to start in the first few. Can I tie these two ideas together? And that is yeah. that maybe I should have... You're selling the children. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should have made $10 billion if the goal was to get to a billion. So Yes. Well, well, when you were talking about that, I thought that actually it's probably not because there's a saying, oh, I think in all around the world, that wealth disappears in three generations. Um, yeah. And certainly going back to the 80s when my career started and there were still quite a few sort of aristocratic families around in the city, it was generally the case that inheriting too much money didn't do you too much good, actually, because yeah. you lost the hunger. And even at a sort of far more modest middle class level in the UK, there's quite a lot of kids who are not from wealthy families, but are from comfortably middle class families who were given the idea that, you know, follow your passion, follow your bliss in life. Mm -hmm. And they, they grow up with this and they sort of get to the mid-twenties and they haven't actually got down to, you know, if you pardon the expression, sort of shoveling shit or, or doing whatever yeah, it takes or, or cleaning toilets or, or something like that. So, uh, yes, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? So on to the um, career journey then in, in terms of the money, but that is a side effect of doing something amazingly productive for the world that the world is very pleased to see. But in terms of your career journey, how did you get to founding Galileo, which I think you found in something like 2000, actually. Yeah, so it's an interesting start. As uh, I, I had been retired for six years prior to starting Galileo, and uh, as I was trying to think about what to, to do, I had several ideas, and uh, my wife, two things. One was, you're going to be held accountable for all the things that you are, in, you know, kind of inspired to go do that you don't do. And two, why don't you get out of the house and go set an example for your children? So... You know, this is back to your earlier point, but I, I had taken a, an earlier company public uh, based on telecommunications. I had patented voice over IP and uh, was really waiting to uh, figure out what to do next. I was doing my own investing. This is when the idea for Galileo came about. So were you always an entrepreneur from the beginning? The first part of my uh, journey, no, I was an employee. I spent uh, time in my career in operating systems, communications, technology, working for larger companies, IBM and Sperry among them. So no, I, ha I was not al always an entrepreneur, but looking back at my childhood, technology and entrepreneurship were certainly very prevalent. It's interesting because in the, the previous podcast, um, also with an American guest, albeit living in London, we were talking quite a lot about culture in companies and how the company reflects society and how society reflects the company and the sort of the circularity of it. And I was referring to the good old days in Europe, pre-company, when guilds ran everything and 
before we dive into the sort of the attributes of entrepreneurship and, and, and how to grow the successful company. So back in the day of guilds, you had a whole system of being an apprentice and working up to be a master. So masterpiece, as, as many listeners may or may not know, literally was the piece of work you produced back in the day. So if you joined the Guild of Carpenters to become a master carpenter, you would produce your masterpiece. It's a bit like your sort of, you know, your dissertation or your final final exam. Oh, interesting. And then you're a master and you're allowed to go and do it. So you're doing the masterpiece. So for most of the time in Europe, Europe was based around, going back to sort of kids and, and all that kind of stuff, that you'd join at the bottom, you'd literally sort of sweep up the shavings for a few years in the way that you would still do in a Zen monastery and all that kind of stuff. And you'd be trained up into something. So you wouldn't have this kind of bookish learning that we have in universities these days in the West where you read a bunch of books and you write an essay and you say, oh, I know about entrepreneurship or I've got an MBA or something like that. But you would literally sort of sit at the feet of somebody like yourself for sort of five or 10 years and you would learn by this old fashioned method of, of absorption, actually. And I was watching a program about a Jap Japanese chef. He cooked a certain type of dish. He was a third generation in his family. He'd been doing it for 30 years and he was saying how fascinating it was. And he said he learned without being told any words. He learned by just being next to his father or something like that. So just before we dive into the, the entrepreneurship, but leading into it quite nicely, in terms of learning, how do you think you learnt to be an entrepreneur? Did you read a book? Did you read a thousand blog posts on how to be an awesome entrepreneur and go and do it? Or did you pick up stuff from the companies you were in? I mean, and going forward in terms of the, the thousands in the audience, for people out there who'd like to be entrepreneurs, and lots of people do, how would you recommend people actually learn to be an entrepreneur? You know, it's a great comment and question. So two points. One is on technology. And my father had his PhD in computer science. And so that was the last thing that I wanted to, to do or be. <laughs> Although I, because I, I had grown up in the computer labs, literally from age eight on. And um, this is back in the very early days of computing. So th that was something that was very familiar to me, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to study that. So I studied zoology and wanted to go to medical school and, and all of that, uh, that, that became derailed. So that's on technology. On the, um, the point of entrepreneurship, I've heard it said that, you know, great entrepreneurs come from fathers of failed entrepreneurs. And that was true in my life too. So while my, my father was a college professor, he had had a, a number of uh, businesses that were just really just bad ideas and poor execution. So as I watched that kind of growing up, I think you know, back to your guild and, and uh, master accomplishment. Uh, I think that was my, my journey, was watching my father. Yes, the absorption thing is very interesting. And I'm, I think I've sort of made jokes in the podcast before about noticing daughters. I mean, mine now in the early, early 20s and, and what they're like, very simplistically speaking, for a father from sort of below 10, 10 to 20, 20 to, to 30. And that I'm, I'm told that they actually sort of, they come back a, a little bit, but you certainly want daughters below 10 because they think daddy's wonderful and can do everything, which of course is the most accurate perception they ever have. <laughs> when they become teenagers and the sort of hormones kick in and all that kind of stuff, they, they start sort of practicing, learning the skills that sort of catch knocks mice around by sort of, uh, uh, you know, rolling eyes at dad and, and all that kind of stuff. And then going back to sort of joining the world of work, my, my, uh, elder daughter I was very keen to take none of my advice whatsoever uh, when she was leaving university a, a year ago. Good for her. Um, anyway, <laughs> a year later, she did relate, swallowing her pride that she, she thought she might get a job in fintech, actually. So it's funny about uh, people actually absorb 
lessons from other human beings. I mean, we are primates, we absorb it. Right. Almost unconsciously, when actually if you tell messages, you know, you, your kids all get to a certain age where if you tell them stuff, you, you know it's probably best to tell them the opposite. <laughs> you, and you don't know whether they're taking it in or not, and t time will tell. We fathers of daughters live in hope, no doubt fathers <laughs> of sons too. So, okay, so there was this question of, um, uh, uh, we absorb it. I like the point about seeing one's family sort of struggle with things, because it's almost like at a subconscious level in the back of your brain, you're trying to work out how dad should have done it, you right, know? Right. And so you're trying to solve problems. So before we dive into some of the attributes of being an entrepreneur, let's just talk about attributes per se first. So we've got this first challenge of attributes, which is theory versus practice, the sort of the nice word versus the reality. It's what I call the Roger's thesaurus problem. We can look through Roger's thesaurus and, and pick out all the nice words. So we could say to our children, or, or, or sort of to entrepreneurs, be wise, be strong, be valiant, be humble. That's fantastic advice, of course. <laughs> but if it's that easy, then everyone be wise, strong and valiant and humble every minute of their life. I mean, everyone would be hardworking and, and all these attributes we're about to mention. So what do you have to say from, from your experience now of, of having created a couple of companies about this gap between sort of almost platonic theory about these lovely words and actually there's just a reality of being a daily human being with babies and you, you feel rough one morning and you feel sort of tired or not well. I mean, what's this gap between sort of where the rubber hits the road? Yeah, it, the point is, you know, what defines it and we can all know at an academic level, but putting it into practice is much more difficult, especially when um, day to day kind of comes full force against that. So I think you're, you're spot on. You really do need to put these things into practice. And so, for example, be humble. How long does that apply? Does it apply from last night when I read it? Or is it, you know, over the course of a week? And I'm reminding myself of that regularly throughout the journey. And in terms of your journey, do you think that you started with these attributes we'll come on to and tried to become them in the way that you go to the gym and you try and become fit by doing a bunch of practices? Or did you kind of almost discover them in a, in a way that a sculpture discovers a sculpture out of stone? I think there's a little bit of, of both. I, I, uh, I was aware of the attributes we'll talk about here in a minute uh, going through the journey, but some of them I'm reminded of a speech that, that Steve Jobs gave where he said, you're not going to be aware until you look back and connect the dots. And it's really only in backward vision that you have this ability. Uh, and so sitting where I sit right now, some of the attributes that we'll talk about were manifest through the journey and others I was very much aware of and, and very much trying to practice the art of, if that makes sense. Yes. And then before diving into these, and just so people don't get too excited, it is things like passion and, and focus uh, and tenacity. But I just want to help people understand how you use some of these words rather than you know, it's the same as here's six awesome attributes of an entrepreneur and you, and you memorize it. And as you say, it lasts for about 24 hours until you forget what they were. The other thing about sort of wisdom is that wisdom is very situational. Um, and we can have an idea of, of balancing attributes. So um, just in terms of sayings, we have the saying, many hands make light work. But also we have too many cooks spoiling the broth. So at one level, these things are contradictory. But at another level, they are situational. So sometimes if you've got a lot of heavy lifting to do, many hands do help you move it all. Equally, in terms of too many cooks spoiling the broth, you know, if, you want to, if you've got your company vision for 2021, 
you can discuss it with a whole bunch of people, but at the end of the day, some person or a very small number of people need to make a decision. Okay, we're going this way, guys. I know you want to go west, I know you want to go east, but we're going sort of north, northwest, and, and that's what we're all going to implement. Work hard is another one. So work hard is great. It's a very American um, attribute. But how long can you work, you know, 18, 19, 20 hours a day, 365 days a year without as it were, killing part of you that makes you the person that you are. You know, you need to balance in a yin-yang way, working hard with sort of resting hard or, or holidays or, or being fresh, you know. So how do you see the sort of the balance of attributes like that, rather than just trying to be all the nice words in the dictionary? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's right. Some of them absolutely need to be balanced. Um, and this gets back to the beginning of the show, well, what's important to you. Uh, and And certainly if you're if you're single-minded here, that can kind of narrow the, the overall joy of life, if you will. And um, some would say, well, being an entrepreneur requires a degree of single-mindedness. And I would say, yes, that's true. And it's how do you measure success? And I don't know that it can be measured in terms of, uh, of economic units. So I think striking that balance is important as you look at some of these uh, attributes. Yes, and the individuality is also quite an important thing. So in a sense, in terms of this journey to entrepreneurship, you know, it's part of sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the top, mm -hmm. is that one of the things is that actually most people are better off being a better version of themselves. I can try and be you, and you can try and be me, or you could try and be Steve Jobs. But a lot of it is about using your own strengths. You know, some simple example, you can have an extroverted fantastic an entrepreneur and you can have an introverted one. You know, they don't all have to go around sort of yelling at people in their faces as Jobs is alleged to have done. So right. how do you see that, not just with yourself, but other entrepreneurs that you've known? Yeah, I think staying true to who you are is really a key part of, uh, it's not one of the uh, attributes I will talk about here and I've, I've outlined, but um, I think it's important because it's, um, it, it's, it allows you to kind of be you in the role and I've tried to do that, although I haven't, I haven't consciously stated it here as a key attribute, but I think your point is it's a very good one. And I, it gets back to some of the ones you were calling out in the dictionary. Steve Jobs uh, may, be, may have been a remarkable, maybe the most remarkable of entrepreneurs, but was he a remarkable human being? I guess that's debatable. Yes, yes, exactly. So moving on to the attributes then, Clay, can you talk about some of these attributes, not just from the dictionary definition, but in terms of your experience of how you approach them, what the challenges were, and you know the reality of where the rubber's hitting the road on, on some of this stuff. Because what I want to avoid is the sort of motherhood and apple pie type of conversation. You know, motherhood's a good thing. Yeah, apple right. pie is a good thing. Going to bed early is a good thing. Well, let's see if we can't uh, actually have a piece of pie, because talking about <laughs> pie is great, a great thing. But uh, be good if we could uh, actually enjoy some here. So the first point I would make is tenacity. Uh, and I don't have these all ranked in terms of priority, but if I did have them ranked, tenacity would be right at the top. So my advice to uh, any entrepreneur is stay with it. And it's hard. There's going to be many, many times where you feel like, you know, why am I doing this? Or I shouldn't be doing this. Or things really feel stacked against me or the industry has turned and and uh, what should I be doing? Uh, so this notion of tenacity is key. And I'll, 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 to your point on balance, I'll strike the, the, try to strike a balance here with another uh, attribute here in a few minutes. But I want to give an example of what I'm talking about here. In the early days of uh, prepaid and what would become fintech, you know, there were uh, conferences uh, as we were getting underway, uh, industry conferences. And Galileo was a great early success at these conferences. 
And then some number of years into it, uh, I went to a conference and I remember sort of standing back against a wall and looking at this conference and feeling very much like this is the year, this is the conference at which Galileo became irrelevant. In other words, the, the entire industry has sort of moved beyond Galileo. And then a few years went by and I was having a conversation with, with a private equity firm. I'll actually mention who this was, General Atlantic. Uh, so this is a top, top tier private equity firm. And now the industry conferences were much, much larger, 10 to 15 times larger than when uh, I had had the original thought of Galileo may be irrelevant. And the individual from this private equity firm pulled me aside and said, there are literally thousands of companies here, but there are only two of them that matter. And one of those is Galileo. And I thought, wow, what? And I remember that, that comment so distinctly because it was, it was uh, such a stark contrast to what I had felt only a few years earlier. In other words, now Galileo is powering these incredible companies like Chime and Robinhood and TransferWise, Varo, Monzo, some of those you mentioned, Revolut, Remitly, of course, SoFi, and many, many, many others, 70 out of the top 100. And their comment was, you know, Galileo might be the most important company here. So it really is, uh, you know, a testament to this tenacity. And, uh, you know, I've also heard that um, entrepreneurship is largely just a pure force of will. And that's, that's what you're up against many times. Yes. We'll come back to the tenacity and the balancing attribute, which is flexibility, because tenacious, meaning to, to hold on to something, it really is a question of what you're holding on to. So right. if you hold on to the answer being northwest, then when the winds and everything's blowing in that direction, you'll be right. But when the winds have changed 180 degrees, if you're tenacious, you'll be plying on to northern, northern wastelands of Canada and <laughs> be quite, quite lonely. So I'd be interested in, in, in hearing that because obviously, notoriously, in the tech world or startup world in, in general, you've got the sort of the pivot thing. But if you're tenacious and all you're ever doing is pivoting and changing direction, that's just Brownian motion. But in terms of the force of will, I quite like that because it's not always emphasize. One of the things that actually I do like about Western, the theology compared to Eastern, is the idea that man is made in, in God's image, or the, or the imperfect version. The point being is that Genesis, as I recall, starts with, uh, in the beginning was the word, and God created the universe with the word. Now, if one is a tiny, tiny, tiny version of that, a, a, a gazillionth of percent of it, it still means that you have, as a human being, the ability to create with a word. You can form with the word, the unmanifest into the manifest. You can create something that's just an idea in your mind, into reality. That isn't so much in Eastern religions. I mean, you've got the mysterious Tao, which is doing its thing, but there isn't so much reference to you can take some of the Tao and like a potter with a clay, you can form it in, into something like that. And a, lo a lot of the Buddhism being a sort of an Indian philosophy is, is, uh, does tend to lean on the side of, well, let's not worry about the world too much. <laughs> we'll close our eyes on that and, and watch the breath come in and out. I'm not being rude because actually I, I've got a lot of time for the, um, the Buddhist stuff. So yes, it is this sort of bizarre thing that of, of all the animals, not all the animals, some of them have got some small creativity, but, but man's creativity, for, for better and for worse, as we see all around us, is a unique attribute. And, and what drives that? It's, it's like the horsepower is, in a sense, your willpower. You know, you're like a sort of thousand horsepower motor car there, or, you know, a, a potter of the unmanifest and creating the unmanifest into the, the manifest. You're bringing up a really uh, key point here. And I think it plays into this notion idea of one of the uh, attributes that um, we want to talk about, and it's a great segue into it, is vision. Uh, and that is that your value proposition, um, in other words, your, your, the way you see the world 
needs to be well-defined and the economic model needs to be well understood, in your, at least in your own mind. And I can talk about that here in a minute in the terms of uh, uh, companies that um, are, are like, well, let's get, uh, let's get market share and we'll figure out the economics later. But that's a, different, that's a different story. In 2000, we started with the idea that payment platforms were not up for the challenges and opportunities of the modern internet era. And uh, so if you went back and looked uh, in the, um, you know, kind of late 1990s, early 2000s, what you would find is that payment platforms were large, monolithic, rigid, inflexible, uh, incapable of sort of doing anything in this internet age. And certainly APIs didn't exist. First Data, as an example, which largest, largest in North America, 480 million lines of COBOL make up that system. <laughs> And so, you know, this is not a platform that uh, you would want to be powering the mod modern digital age. And yet it's the pet platform that, and platforms like it, that power much of the financial services industry, even still today. And so how do you, how do you move into a technology environment and era and try to preserve the, the, the ways in which uh, these things happen? We'll talk about the innov innovator's uh, dilemma here and the role that innovation plays here in just a minute. But um, this idea of vision, you need to have it and you need to be able to bring people to that vision. If you can't, you're going to fail. And as an entrepreneur, this is really perhaps the most important notion of being an entrepreneur. And that is really putting it on your sales hat and, and converting people to your vision. Yes, you have an idea in your mind. And I like this point about sort of selling the vision because it, what it does do is, is slightly change this word attribute that I'm talking uh, about much more to the apprenticeship to master model, which is a skill. It's a skill we, we, we all learn, you know, when you're sort of five years old, you're, you're not that good at selling anything to anybody in particular. You can probably manipulate your mum or dad to get ice creams or more or less successfully, but that's about it. Whereas one of the skills that we all develop simply by talking it is the ability to enthuse people with your vision that's right and magnetize them let me share a non-fintechy uh, sort of story here related to this and that has to do with telecommunications the earlier idea that i took public i had first patented the idea for voice over ip and uh, we were out talking to various analysts and investment banks and whatnot and on the you know, roadshow and the journey, you meet a lot of very interesting people and many of them are resistant to the idea. But I want to go back in time here for just a minute. And that is that, um, you know, AT&T in North America had by far the largest uh, the market share, uh, even though that, that they had been uh, broken up into Ma Bell and the Baby Bells at the time that this is occurring. There's still a very, very large player in long distance. And, um, they had the lowest cost basis and they had the highest revenue and the highest margin uh, in the industry. And uh, the most dominant question that I received from the investment bankers who you would think would know. Now, remember that I was taking this company public. This predated Netscape and it predated Yahoo, the first two known internet companies, if you will, or, or uh, large. And they, you know, they, the question was, how are you going to compete with AT&T? with these sorts of economic forces and these sorts of economic conditions. And my response was actually, uh, that's not the right question. The question is, how is AT&T going to compete with me? Because I can do for two one hundredths of a cent, what requires 2.3 cents. Now they had 17 cents per minute on re average revenue, 2.3 cents per, per minute on cost. And I could do it at two one hundredths of a cent. 
Well, at AT&T, the company, they actually went out of business and the brand was bought, bought by one of the baby bells. What they quoted as putting them out of business was voice over IP. Oh, wow. And so this is this idea of stay with your vision. And it's, it's really important. You know, again, back to Apple, uh, you know, we all look at the iPhone, but you, you only need to go back a few years or earlier than that and see some failed handheld Newton as failed experiments uh, with, with that company. Yes, and one of the things about vision, it's a very rare sense. I mean, we can taste things in our mouth, we can smell things relatively near us. But vision, depending on where you're sitting, you can actually see for many miles. I presume that in terms of the sharpness of eyes, in terms of seeing into the future, that's quite important for the entrepreneur because almost in a sense it's the, your clarity of how well you can see into the future. Oh, I, I can see kind of three to five years ahead. You know, now we can all say that, but how well we can do it is a different thing entirely. That's very true. I don't know what defines uh, vision and if, it's, if there's some sort of equivalent to, uh, say, natural athletic ability for vision. I'm not sure. Or if this is a, a trait that can be developed by anyone. But I know that successful entrepreneurs must, must have vision and they must be able to bring people over to that vision, as I mentioned. And it brings me to a point that I'd like to talk about, which is this idea of strong partnership. Choose those people, surround yourself with those people that, one, have been brought over to your vision, but two, uh, can really reinforce your own capabilities. Uh, in other words, there may be holes in your skill set. And if you'll bring people into this partnership, both in terms of uh, key employees and others that can complement your skill set, um, you're going to be adding to, which is really key to, uh, to what, what you do as an entrepreneur. Your book, Mike, on making your board an engine of growth. I love the, I love the idea here. Uh, and this is, uh, what do you do for uh, your partners in terms of uh, equity partners? And we uh, went down a path um, deferring that. When we finally did make a choice uh, around our key equity partner, uh, we chose Excel, which is an incredible company. It has an incredible track record of uh, of um, creating success stories out of API um, uh, companies. Um, it was really, really key and there's a great collaboration there. So I like the point that you make uh, in, in your book about uh, you know, this board as an engine of growth and it's, it's, it is key. Excellent. On this point of partnership, the Oracle at Delphi had sort of know thyself above it and that's terribly important and coming back to this point about trying to be the best version of you. You know, you can be partnering, partnering with a buddy to form a business and it doesn't particularly matter if you're particularly somebody who's got vision wherever that comes from and they're particularly somebody who likes staying in the office and just making it all happen and being COO like that's fine or vice versa if you don't have much vision but actually you're quite good at just sort of you know grinding it out and creating machinery and creating product then you're going to be a good team but that relies on having the honesty in the first place okay so moving on to some of the other aspects quickly as companions to vision I would say passion you know passion is it's really, uh, you know, your vision, you're real, really the only strength that you have is, is can you bring others to your vision? And if you can't, you likely won't succeed. And then this idea of focus, uh, which is, you know, focusing on your vision. How do you really, you know, day to day, how do you put this vision into uh, practice? And uh, again, a quote from Steve Jobs, all the things we needed to say no to so that we could succeed with what we uh, succeeded with. So these ideas of vision, passion, and, and focus. We can talk a little bit about flexibility, which is your earlier point. How do you balance this with tenacity? 
And this gets back to um, when the circumstances change, what do you do? And I think that that needs to be uh, a part of uh, absolutely of, of what you're doing day to day. And this, uh, this can also be applied to larger uh, incumbents in financial services, as an example. So flexibility, what do you do? And this is the innovator's dilemma. So, you know, the resource dependence that current customers drive a company's uh, use of resources. A small markets struggle to impact the incumbent's larger market. And all of these disruptive forces uh, in incumbent organizations. In that regard, I think banks right now are facing a key time, which is, are they going to allow tech and fintech to not only disrupt and um, disintermediate, are they going to respond? Are, is, are incumbent organizations going to respond and do something in response to uh, this incredible movement that's underway right now? So all those are good questions, which are worthy of podcast in themselves. Maybe we just wrap up with one of the human things. If you started with family, which is a good background, other people maybe on their own may have the church or the monastery or whatever or other resources. But in terms of, as I say, guilds being a microcosm of society, business is a microcosm of life. It's an activity that takes place in the context of life. And you don't need to live too many decades before realising that some, some days you sort of wake up flat on your face in the gutter with scraped knees and scraped elbows in, in a certain amount of pain. And I quite like the idea that it's not a question of how many times you fall down. It's simply a question of standing up one more time than you fall over. And you mentioned the book, um, and I've mentioned this the tale on the podcast before, certainly the first two dozen entrepreneurs I spoke to interviewing them about the boards. What came over to me in terms of their confidential conversations with me was the pain that they'd been through was the four o'clock in the morning cold sweats. You know, I got a real, it made my sort of skin creep in some senses, you know, my God, it's tough. And I've known uh, obviously quite a few entrepreneurs in, in London over the cycle in recent years. And, you know, you meet them when a fundraising is going badly. Boy, are you, are you being tested then? It, you know, it's like some awful cross-country run at school when it's freezing cold, it, it's wet, your feet hurt, your knees ache, and you aren't even halfway around. So what would you say about the inevitable times when putting all these things to one side, you're actually just a human being and, and somehow you're, you know, you're halfway up the mountain and you don't feel you can go on, but somehow you've got to find the ability to go on? I 100% agree with your point. There were 20 or 30 or 40, literally, you know, over the 20 years, uh, there was times when we should have stopped. And that's why tenacity was sort of the first attribute that I talked about, where it felt so hard that, um, that maybe uh, it would have been better and easier just to, to stop. And staying with it is key, and it's in those moments. I'm a big marathon runner, or, or was in, earlier in my athletic career. And uh, you, know, you, you get up to uh, mile 20, uh, 22, 24, and you're still uh, several miles from the journey, it's hard. It's really, really hard in those moments. And that's why tenacity is key. Yes, I guess the, the takeaway there is nothing persists like persistence. And I'm just thinking the infamous book by Joe Simpson, Touching the Void, where he fell down a crevasse, broke both his legs, and I've forgotten whichever South American mountain it was. He called down his hands and knees on that mountain with two broken legs. And he said, how did I do it? He said, I would never have have done it if I thought, how do I crawl down the mountain? I thought, no, I can't do that. <laughs> he was the guy who did it. He, he said, I only ever thought about, can I crawl to that other rock there? You know, can I crawl one foot? Okay, I can do the one foot, you know, it's sort of the, the salami slice. And it's, it's a bit like life, really, in that uh, you may want to give up, but can you do the next minute? Well, okay. Can you do the next half hour? 
So yes, persistence. I quite like the fact that actually a lot of what we're talking about here are human attributes for dealing in life in general. You can just as well talk about a marriage or a family or, or you know, your whole journey from sort of a, a cradle to grave um, kind of thing. Um, and it really is a good example of where in business you can actually do something to help your brotherhood of man and womanhood around you. And at the same time, by going through that process, it's a bit like going to the gym. It's going to be bloody painful at some times on those, on those weights and, and doing the running. But it's actually that pain that somehow makes you stronger, he says, being a complete couch potato. Anyway, before we uh, before we turn the mirror on me too much, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope you've taken away some ideas from the show and can implement it in, in whatever area of your life you wish to, and that some of you will implement it in your businesses. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. And I also signed up myself, theunlistedboard.com, which is my new project to provide resources for those on or aspiring to be on startup, scale-up, growth co, and pre-IPO boards. Okay, so we've mentioned Galileo. The listeners are spread around the world, 191 countries, uh, just under half in the UK and half elsewhere. Clay, so to those who are completely deeply in your sector, they may know about you already. Anybody who doesn't particularly know about Galileo, I do recommend your appearance last month on Peter Renton's podcast to hear a bit more about Galileo and the payments and, and the stuff you do if you want to, to fill that in. But otherwise, Clay, what would you like to tell the listeners in terms of who should be checking you guys out, what you're after to make Galileo even bigger and better going forwards and who can help you? So Galileo has clearly been a standout in digital banking. Something like 70 out of the top 100 fintechs are clients. 95%, we mentioned that earlier. The thesis between the combination of SoFi and Galileo is really, can we continue to power the ecosystem that Galileo is powering today, but bring in some of the products that SoFi has been so good at creating in a consumer channel? Can we wrap our APIs around that? So these lending and invest products, uh, in particular, personal loans, home loans, refinanced student loans, these products, can we make those available out to the broader ecosystem? And, then, and these partners all have these lending products in their roadmap. So the future is very, very bright uh, for Galileo, overwhelmingly demanding at this point. We are expanding, expanding rapidly. We're live in Mexico. We've got six additional countries in Latin that are currently coming online. Uh, we've identified Asia Pacific areas, specifically Hong Kong, Japan, and uh, Singapore that we're moving into. So Doing that, I mentioned the lending products. Uh, we've also got a very dominant position in invest. Uh, so the ability to uh, invest in a fee-free way uh, and conduct fractional trading uh, and tying together these areas of financial services into the area of, uh, of investing is, is uh, all uh, going on now and uh, making Galileo uh, quite exciting. Excellent. Well, that's very good to hear. I hope that people will check you guys out and great congratulations on your success and I wish you more and just in terms of modelling the change that one wants to see in the world I've been following the news far too much I'm trying to de-addict myself recently and quite a bit of what one sees about America at the moment is not really ideal it's sort of rather troubling but the media always tries to pick the sort of the scariest things so it's really a great privilege Clay to have you on the show today to have you sharing the best of what I've always seen about America is the creativity and the openness and the drive to create something that's genuinely useful for the world and you know we all leave the world in a, a little better place than we found it so thank you very much for that at the business level and also at the modeling level and i wish you every success in the future thank you very much mike thanks for having me on the show i really appreciate it mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye City goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.